We know the news can be relentless, and it's hard to keep up. On Your World Tonight, it's our mission to catch you up in less than 30 minutes. When news breaks, our reporters are there, across Canada and around the world. We bring you context and analysis and sort out what's real and what's relevant. I'm Susan Bonner. I'm Tom Harrington. I'm Stephanie Skanderis. We host Your World Tonight. New episodes every night, seven days a week. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Come take a walk with me through the Canadian War Museum in Ottawa. This is where Canada's military history is told. Step through this spacious lobby and hang a right at the information booth to enter the gallery section. Just past the exhibit about the early wars in Canada, we find a gallery filled with artifacts and memorabilia from the First World War. And we're in the section that's called The Last Hundred Days. Danielle Taillier is our guide. As the historian on Indigenous military history here, it's Danielle's job to ensure Indigenous stories are told at the Canadian War Museum. Stories like this one about one of our most highly decorated veterans. So I'm standing here next to a display um, about famous First World War sniper Francis Pagamagabo of the Wasoxing First Nation. To my right, we have a small display case that features the medals that he earned during his service. He remains to this day one of the most highly decorated Indigenous veterans of the Canadian military. There's also a handmade leather pouch beneath the medals, um, and that's where he kept these medals uh, to sort of keep them safe when they weren't being worn or displayed. Uh, and then on my left, we have a beautiful headdress worn by Pegamagabo. And it actually is kind of a centerpiece of this part of the gallery. It's, it's really a focal point. And I think it's a great opportunity and a great artifact to talk about his leadership role after the war. Visiting a museum like this is one way people remember and honor our veterans. Now, we're also learning about the contributions of Indigenous veterans and upholding their stories in the same way we hold them in our hearts. Anin, Buju, hello and welcome. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. In Canada's capital, Danielle Taillet helps the Canadian War Museum tell the stories of Indigenous veterans. They'll tell us why so many chose to fight for a country that often mistreated them. They felt a sense of equality, some of them for the first time ever. They were serving right alongside non-Indigenous soldiers. And so there was that sense of camaraderie that was built through those wartime experiences and it kind of seemed to transcend race. Then we head to Labrador, where Heather Campbell passes on the stories of her great-great-uncle, an Inuk soldier in the First World War. How letters from her Uncle John help keep his spirit alive. If it wasn't for that, I, I worry that his story probably would have been lost along with so many other Inuit and then Indigenous soldiers. And we land south of the Medicine Line in a small Rhode Island community. That's where Loren Spears helped build a monument to honour Indigenous veterans. 
We have Narragansett stonemasons that built this stunningly beautiful uh, stonemasonry arch that honors all indigenous veterans of Turtle Island. Today, from museums and monuments in the public realm to letters and laughs shared around the dinner table, indigenous veterans are being remembered across Turtle Island. John Shywalk grew up on the land in Labrador and was a skilled hunter. He was a good shot and became a sniper when he fought in the First World War. The Enoch soldier fought in the Battle of Cambrai in Maynier, France. On November 21, 1917, he was making his way along a canal bank when a German artillery shell exploded. Seven were killed and ten wounded. One of those killed was John Shywalk. The dead were buried in temporary graves nearby, but the area was shelled many times after. Soon, all signs of the graves were lost. John's body was never returned to Labrador. These are the kinds of stories Heather Campbell knows well. Heather is John's great-great-niece. She's been learning about him since she was a little girl, To Heather, he's Uncle John, and her family has been honoring his memory for over 100 years. Heather, welcome to Unreserved. Hi, thanks for having me. How did you first learn about your Uncle John? I feel like I've always known about him. It's just that my family had talked about him every uh, Remembrance Day, I think, since, you know, he went missing and... Um, yeah, we continue to talk about him now. And what kinds of stories uh, did you hear about him growing up? There was always a sense that our family was very proud of him and that the whole community was proud of him, that, you know, he was so well known and so well respected within um, the army and that, you know, he was written about in the press as well as our own magazine in Labrador and just that sense of loss because he had given that ultimate sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Do you know what he uh, looked like? Yes, we do have, uh, I think, two or three photos of him. And, you know, he's he looks very much like a, a typical, you know, man from Labrador. But we also have some kind of features that I think have, have kept uh, popping up in the family as well. I know I have a cousin that looks so much like him. And, you know, I think that makes it even more impactful when you can recognize yourself in in those photos. How has his name and, um, you know, his story been passed down through the generations? Um, I was raised by my grandparents. My grandmother, that was her uncle, her father's older brother. So, you know, every Remembrance Day, or when it started to get closer to Remembrance Day, she'd start mentioning how Uncle John went to the war. And Uncle John, you know, he never got to come back from the war. And uh, we'd often pull out that magazine that we had about him and his story and look at his picture. Our town would often have uh, Remembrance Day um, ceremonies. So we would go to the ceremony. Um, and now... We do a lot of sharing through Facebook and social media about his story, too. Mm. I understand you also have uh, another 
uncle named Johnny as well. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, my grandmother's brother. So we used to call him, his nickname was Johnny Boy, but his full name was yeah, John Shylock. Mm. Um, she had a cousin who was also named after him. And um, I have a nephew now. My sister's son is also named uh, Jonathan. Oh, and is that an Inuit um, tradition to take somebody's name that you've lost and pass that on? Yes, it is a, a tradition to, to name children after someone who's passed. And there's a belief that that child will take on some of the, the qualities of the person that has passed, your your namesake. So I think, you know, we we had so much respect for Uncle John and knew what a, a great hunter he was and kind of hoping that you know, some of those traits we get passed on to. Mm. <laughs> Why do you think you, you feel such a strong connection to your Uncle John? I think personally for me, I felt like a real connection to him because um, in the writings of uh, Lacey, Amy, he was a friend of Uncle John's from Southern Canada. And they wrote back and forth for years, including his time in the war. So uh, knowing that he was an artist and a poet and sort of a sensitive soul, I think, you know, it it was something that really stood out to me because I'm an artist as well. And yeah, made me feel a bit closer to him. Hmm, that's wonderful. Uh, now, as you said, John was, was a writer and wrote many letters um, tell me about how his letters from the front lines ended up in a, in a 1918 issue of the Canadian magazine. Lacey Amy was uh, a writer. So he had written, I think, books and magazine articles as well. So after he developed a friendship with Uncle John, and then, you know, they were writing back and forth during uh, wartime, almost all of his belongings ended up with uh, Mr. Amy instead of our family which is a bit odd, but um, supposedly he had journals and sketchbooks. My Uncle John's journals and sketchbooks were sent to to him rather than back to Labrador. So we've been, we had tried to track them down, but we haven't had any luck, unfortunately. Hmm. Would you be able to uh, read an excerpt from that article? Yeah. In the article, it says, the duration of the war was wearing on him. He had no close friends, none to keep warm the link with his distant home. In September, he lamented, I have no letters from home since July. There will be no more now till the ice breaks. In his last, he longed again for the old hunting days. Labrador, that had never satisfied his ambitions, looked warm and friendly to him now. That was in mid-November. A month later, an official envelope came to me. Inside was my last letter. On its face was the soulless stamp, deceased. Mm. What does it feel like to read those words about his experiences in the war? Um, I think it's, it's sort of a, I feel like it's almost fate that he ended up meeting a writer from Canada, like from mainland Canada. If it wasn't for that, I, I worry that his story probably would have been lost along with so many other Inuit and then Indigenous soldiers. I'm thankful that, you know, we have something like this to 
to keep going back to each year to to help remember him. Yeah. And being from Labrador, how difficult do you think it was for him to be separated from, you know, from the land and family and, and all the things that he did, like hunting and being on the land? Yeah, I think uh, from some of the other um, writings of Lacey Amy, he talks about how uh, Uncle John had ambitions and that, you know, he would travel to St. John's during the summers on the boat. And, you know, he had, I think, a longing for something more and he wanted to get out and see the world and explore the world. And um, that's something that I can relate to as well. I remember first going to university and being overwhelmed by the size of like a Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, which, <laughs> which seemed like a huge city to me with all the lights. And I think Uncle John probably, you know, was imagining something like St. John's in his mind when he thought about going to to war and to Europe. I don't know if he had like a, a true sense of what it would have been like. I can sort of imagine from my my own trips, but it must have been very overwhelming. Just the scale of things and the amount of people would have been nothing that he had experienced before. And um, I think a lot of uh, the Indigenous listeners would, or of anyone who's visited a reserve would know, we have these, like the, the matchbox houses, you know, that we, that we talk about now. It's just like a little rectangle. Mm-hmm. But when he was alive, we didn't even have that. So in our community, people would just piece together bits of wood from other sources or, you know, chopping down their own wood to make like a very small log cabin that would have been just tall enough to uh, stand up in. There are some people that still lived in sod houses at that time. So to go from something that's, you know, that you can stand up in barely to the buildings in Europe, like it must have been just incredible. Yeah, I would imagine so. Um, As part of this episode, we're speaking uh, with a historian from the Canadian War Museum. What role do you think museums play in keeping stories, you know, like your Uncle John's going? Oh, that's a tough question. I think the story of Inuit soldiers from Newfoundland and Labrador is a story that needs to be told. A lot of people don't realize that there were Inuit that went to war and that there were uh, First Nations and Métis that went to war as well in the First and Second World Wars. And the important role that we played, we were so used to hunting and fishing and trapping and tracking animals and all of those skills were what he used to become the soldier that he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if they can take the time and and tell those stories, I think it would be very enriching for our country as a whole, but it would be a a good way to honor Inuit and Indigenous soldiers. Mm, Absolutely. I understand you visited the the Canadian War Museum. Can you tell me about that visit? Yeah, it was the the first year that they had opened in the summer, I think. And uh, I'd gone with a friend of mine and... You know, I, I didn't really know what to expect. We were sort of seeing all of the large, you know, tanks and, and vehicles and that kind of thing. But when I came to the area where they have um, like a recreation of the trenches from World War One, I'm like, oh, wow, 
You know, I automatically thought of Uncle John. And you can actually walk through that sort of like a simulation of, of what it was like. So it's quite tall, like uh, above your head, but it's got all of the, the things that you would have seen back then. And maybe halfway through thinking about Uncle John, like I just got so overwhelmed uh, imagining what it must have been like for him to be, they were basically living in the earth, you know, with bombs and, and guns going off around them and, you know, the screams of other soldiers and the rain and the muck and the cold, like how awful it must have, like I'm getting cold shivers now just thinking about how horrible it must have been. So, yeah, I, it really was like emotionally overwhelming for me. I ended up crying there inside the inside the museum. But yeah, I wish everyone had a chance to go through and and see the exhibit and to think about them. I think it humanizes them to be in that same spot. Wow, what a powerful experience. As you said earlier, you said that, you know, he never came home from the war, but his belongings also never made it home. What happened to them? We did get, there was a medal that was sent back, but his medals ended up getting lost somewhere along the, the way. But my cousin, Jason Sikowak, formerly was Shiwak, but he's took the uh, Inuktitut pronunciation back. So Jason went over uh, as part of a special project with the Canadian government to honor uh, Indigenous soldiers. So he was able to get uh, replicas of Uncle John's medals as well. But all of his journals, like I said, his journals and his sketchbooks were sent to Mr. Amy. And um, I was working with a researcher trying to figure out if we could get find those sketchbooks and journals, but we didn't have any luck. Are you still hoping to somehow get them back? Well, if there's anyone out there that's related to Mr. Amy and hears this, it would be a wonderful thing if they have any idea of what we're what we're talking about. <laughs> so it's a long shot, but you never know. You never know. Somebody might be listening. And I understand when your your cousin traveled to Europe to do that honoring uh, of of John's memory, you gave him something to bring with him on the journey. What did you give him? Yeah, I was living in Ottawa at the time, and he was passing through on his way over to France. And he uh, asked me if I had anything, you know, of Labrador that we could bring over to sort of help help ground Uncle John's spirit and to, to bring him back. And I actually had some Labrador carving stone at the time. So I was sort of saving it in case maybe I would turn it into something. But um, yeah, it was just the rock at that time. So I gave it to him and he brought it over. It was like a sort of that grounding or centering thing that he would bring over and then take back. Mm. And did your cousin feel your Uncle John's presence while he was there at all? Yes, he says that he did. He says that he, you know, had an experience, like a sort of a vision of him, and he feels as if he came back to Labrador. So I, I hope that's true. Mm. That's beautiful. Why is it important for for you and your family to bring, you know, your Uncle John's belongings back to Labrador? For most Inuit cultures, the act of burial has sort of activities attached to it. So very often 
people who'd be buried with some of their favorite things. And we'll go back to the burial site to talk to that person and to give gifts. So like my grandparents' uh, grave sites have, you know, little lights on them and figurines and, you know, all, all of these things that we think that, you know, their soul is still there and that they're enjoying the little things that we bring to them. So knowing that Uncle John was over there, but he was alone, he had no one visiting him. Um, he didn't have anything of his home and our land with him was very, I think it's kind of disturbing to us, you know, that he was stuck over there. So that was why it was so important that Jason went over to try to bring, bring him back. Yeah. And how will you continue to um, honor the memory of John, you know, in your own, in your own family with your own children? Well, I've been talking to him, to my daughter ever since she was small. And, you know, she'll mention, she's very proud to talk about him uh, during school events for Remembrance Day. Yeah, uh, I think she's probably still too young to read the article. She's 12 now, but I, at some point I will, probably next year, I'll let her read, read the article. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing, sharing with us this, this story and the memory of your uncle. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Heather Campbell is an artist and archivist based in Labrador. John Shywalk was her great-great-uncle. You're listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Today, Indigenous people across Turtle Island are ensuring our veterans are never forgotten. For Danielle Taye, that means taking time to pause each November 8th. Danielle is an historian at the Canadian War Museum in Ottawa. Indigenous Veterans Day is an opportunity to honour and reflect on her own family's stories. Her brother, father and partner have served in the reserves at different times. And both of her grandfathers have served in the Second World War. I think Indigenous Veterans Day is important for us to mark and to commemorate in in addition to Remembrance Day on November 11th. Just because of historically the lack of recognition that Indigenous veterans have received, both in the immediate aftermath of their service through supports like benefits and pensions, but also just broadly speaking, I think even coming into more recent years, I think it's becoming better known now. But to me, I think the reason it's so significant to have a specific day for Indigenous veterans is just an acknowledgement of the added dimension of their service that just didn't exist for non-Indigenous people, which is despite things like not even having the ability to vote and being considered a ward of the state in the case of status Indians, still choosing to take on a profound obligation of citizenship, which is putting on a uniform and going to war. And I think that added layer of taking on that responsibility, considering these social, economic, political realities, is why it's so important to acknowledge their service. In order to talk about understanding enlistment, I think People need to understand that there's this dimension of 
considerations that Indigenous people had that maybe non-Indigenous recruits wouldn't have had to consider. Some of the motivations would have been material, so things like a regular, reliable paycheck, a good paycheck, clothing being provided, meals being provided. Other things would have been opportunity to travel and see the world at a time when travel was pretty much reserved for the wealthy. And even following friends and family into service was a fairly common thing. And all of those, of course, could apply to non-Indigenous people. But some of the considerations Indigenous people had were things like, just for example, um, some residential schools had cadet programs that encouraged enlistment. There were also the factors of the relationship with the Crown, seeing enlistment and support for the war as just part of that relationship with the British Crown, which could date back potentially centuries to things like the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which, of course, recognized First Nations sovereignty. Um, Also things like previous military alliances and the number of treaties. And so some veterans talked about signing up in order to defend treaty rights. As an example, for the Second World War, if Hitler and the Germans were to win the war, what would happen to those treaties? Because those treaties were with the British crown. So there was sort of a sense of... Uh, trying to defend those rights, essentially. And then I guess there, for some, perhaps, a consideration would have been a political act. Famous Second World War and Korean War veteran, uh, Sergeant Tommy Prince, he was from the Broken Head Reserve in Manitoba, and he talked about enlisting to show that First Nations recruits were as good as any white man. There aren't official numbers when we're speaking broadly pan-Indigenous participation in the First World War or Second World War. And the reason for that is that the government wasn't tracking uh, Indigenous enlistment with the exception of status Indians. So that's why if you Google it and you look at a bunch of different sources, you'll see a whole bunch of different estimates as to the number of Indigenous people who serve. So roughly speaking, there were approximately 8,000 First Nations, or in other words, status Indians, who served in the First and Second World Wars. But we do know anecdotally that thousands more uh, Métis, Inuit, and non-status First Nations people served. I'm Red River Métis on my dad's side. I know for a fact that my grandfather and several of his siblings served in the Second World War without any recognition of their indigeneity. And I would strongly suggest that the lack of having a number associated with these other groups in no way diminishes the significance of their service and their sacrifice. That was Danielle Taillet, historian at the Canadian War Museum. Despite the lack of official numbers, We do know thousands of Indigenous people served their countries during wartime. Danielle recounts some of the common experiences she's heard from Indigenous veterans. We know the news can be relentless and it's hard to keep up. On Your World Tonight, it's our mission to catch you up in less than 30 minutes. When news breaks, our reporters are there across Canada and around the world. We bring you context and analysis and sort out what's real and what's relevant. I'm Susan Bonner. I'm Tom Harrington. I'm Stephanie Skanderis. We host Your World Tonight. New episodes every night, seven days a week. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. 
This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Today, how Indigenous communities are holding up their veterans and holding on to their stories for future generations. Back at the Canadian War Museum, Danielle Teye gives us some insight into what it was like for Indigenous veterans fighting overseas and how that experience changed when they came home. There's no single um, narrative that can cover every single person's experience, but some really common uh, experiences described by veterans were that they felt a sense of equality, some of them for the first time ever. So they served overseas, and because there were no Indigenous-specific segregated units that Canada had for the First World War or the Second World War, they were serving right alongside non-Indigenous soldiers. And so there was that sense of camaraderie that was built through those wartime experiences, and it kind of seemed to transcend race. And it really made an impression, I think, on a lot of people, especially when they came back to find that that didn't hold over after the war and they came back to pre-existing discriminatory and colonial policies. Indigenous veterans faced a lot of discrimination when they came back. They did not have generally speaking, equal access to veterans' benefits. So we're talking about things like pensions, um, land grants, opportunities to set up uh, farming operations. Um, And frankly, even after the First World War, about 85,000 acres of reserve land in Western Canada had been acquired by the government for the settlement of non-Indigenous veterans. So some of them would have even come home to discover that the land on their reserve was smaller than it was when they left. During the First World War, I think there was a certain sense that perhaps military service could serve as a tool of assimilation for Indigenous people because they would have an opportunity to intermingle with white people and they would essentially see that their way of life was inferior to their their white comrades essentially and that they would come back from those experiences and want to enfranchise and want to give up their treaty rights potentially and become a citizen and that didn't generally happen we talked a little bit about the camaraderie between non-indigenous and indigenous soldiers and so they did have those shared experiences together but in a lot of cases what that served to do for Indigenous people was showed them what equality looked like and what things could look like if they had appropriate rights under the government. And so instead of assimilating, um, a lot of these veterans came home and became activists and advocates for Indigenous rights. And after the First World War, we actually see um, the first pan-Indigenous political organizing through the League of Indians of Canada, which was created by a veteran from Six Nations of the Grand River, uh, Frederick Loft. The organization was seeking to advocate for Indigenous rights, Indigenous veterans' rights as well, and access to benefits, improvements to things like residential school system. Unfortunately, these movements were generally unsuccessful. Um, And in fact, the government's reaction after the First World War to some of this political organizing was to prohibit 
uh, status Indians from organizing politically. You know, these are obviously significant issues. After the Second World War, there was sort of a national reassessment of the treatment of Indigenous people. And that did lead to some small changes uh, in policies. So, for example, the past system, which required uh, status Indians to receive permission from an Indian agent in order to leave their reserve. Um, that was changed after the Second World War. This would have been in 1951, I believe. But largely speaking, some really important restrictions still remained, uh, just to name a couple. The right to vote federally did not come until 1960. It remained prohibited to sell intoxicants, in other words, alcohol, to uh, status Indians, which in some cases prevented First Nations veterans from being able to access their local legion branches. And so not only did that cut them off a little bit from the veterans community, but it also prevented them in some cases from receiving information about pensions and benefits because that information would be often disseminated through things like legions. And significantly, the residential school system remained firmly in place until the 1990s. Danielle Teye is Red River Métis from Manitoba. She's the historian of Indigenous history at the Canadian War Museum in Ottawa. You're listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Today, we remember Indigenous veterans from across Turtle Island. We head south of the Medicine Line to Exeter, Rhode Island. That's where Loren Spears and members of the Narragansett Tribal Nation are making sure Indigenous veterans are acknowledged and recognized for generations to come. In the Rhode Island Veterans Memorial Cemetery, a beautiful stone monument now stands. It's the first to honor Indigenous veterans in that community, even though Native Americans have fought in every war since Confederation. Lauren Spears is a member of the Narragansett Tribal Nation. She is the co-chair of the Honoring Indigenous Veterans of Turtle Island Committee and the executive director of the Tomaquag Museum in Exeter, Rhode Island. Lauren, welcome to Unreserve. Thank you so much. Take us to your community. How would you describe Exeter, Rhode Island? So the museum is located in Exeter, but the Narragansett Tribal Nation is the only federally recognized tribal nation in Rhode Island. But Rhode Island is buffered by other southern New England uh, states that include other tribal communities, the Pequot next door, the Mohegan, the Wampanoag, the Nipmuc. And um, just across the sound, there's the Shinnecock and the Montauk out on Long Island. And we're all geographically very close. And before European contact had a lot of kinship relations with all those different tribal nations. Mm. That, that That's a lot of nations in one area. What is the historical connection to those indigenous people and the surrounding land and the town? So uh, the Narragansett Nation really is the um, nation that was taking up most of the geographic area that is now considered Rhode Island. Um, there was the Niantic, which edged into the southwestern corner, the Nipmuc in the northwestern corner, and the Wampanoag in the northeastern corner that kind of touched on what is now known as Rhode Island. But the majority of that space and place was the Narragansett Nation. Mm. And what would be a typical way for Rhode Islanders to honor their veterans? 
Well, you know, um, in Rhode Island as a state, they honor veterans in all kinds of ways with monuments, um, big celebrations on Veterans Day, different kinds of ceremonies for interring veterans. And it's not that Native veterans weren't part of some of those bigger, larger recognitions of veterans. It's that they weren't singled out. And in a lot of these spaces and places, um, certain ethnic backgrounds are getting the majority of the visibility, including the first Rhode Island Regiment, which was in the Revolutionary War, that recently has acknowledged that there are Black people that had participated in that regiment. And so it's often called the Black Regiment. But in doing so, it actually erases the Indigenous presence that was in that regiment during the Revolutionary War as well. And so um, we actually did a book project about that at one point with a partner author, uh, Robert Geek. It's called From Slaves to Soldiers, the First Rhode Island Regiment in the American Revolution. Even that is a bit of a misnomer, though, because all of them were not slaves that were participatory, whether they were Indigenous or African-descended peoples, they were, many of them were also free men that participated in that um, regiment in the war. And so sometimes the naming of things today erases the indigeneity in the participation of service. And as we all know, indigenous people, Native Americans, if you want to call us that, have the highest number per capita of armed service in the U.S. armed forces since the beginning of this country through today. That's still a truth. Mm-hmm. And how much do you think um, people in that community know about the contributions of our Indigenous veterans? Very little, very little indeed. I feel that as the leader of a a Native American museum and a very rural space in Rhode Island, that we really work hard to bring to light that understanding. And getting involved in this project was another way to do that. It's a very visible way. The monument is absolutely beautiful. It stands out because it's very unique in its look. Um, We have Narragansett stonemasons that built this stunningly beautiful uh, stonemasonry arch. And then we have a monument stone underneath that honors all, it says honoring all indigenous veterans of Turtle Island to acknowledge that not just those that are interred in that cemetery, but all their contributions across um, North America. But also in the back, we we honor that it's on Narragansett homelands, and we also honor the uh, known people that are interred there and their nations that are represented in the Rhode Island Veterans Cemetery. Mm. And how do you think building this monument, this beautiful monument to all uh, Indigenous veterans will help, you know, surrounding people understand that history? Well, I think it's a very visible expression. And already we've had a lot of people not only participating in the groundbreaking and the ribbon cutting, but that are calling us up and saying, we have go to that veteran cemetery all the time to honor our family members, veterans, but we never really knew that there was such a vast number of indigenous veterans that serve in the U.S. armed forces, and many of which have given their lives in sacrifice to the safety and security of all of our families and communities. And I think it opened up a dialogue uh, about this. And it also got the veteran cemetery leadership also talking about that. And people from the VA, uh, the Veterans Administration here in Rhode Island participated both in the groundbreaking and the ribbon cutting. They understood the historic nature of this monument being built. Mm. And when did that happen, the, the, the unveiling of the monument? 
it was on September 20th um, was the ribbon cutting. And it was amazing because we had all these different Indigenous veterans as well as non-Indigenous veterans present and participating. And the, the most beautiful image of all was all these veterans standing in front of it. It was Philip Stanton and Alberta uh, Wilcox that um, were the two that actually did the ribbon cutting. They're both Narragansett and one was 91 and one is 96. And it's just really amazing to see them and to hear from them how important this was to them and that they're in their life, they're finally getting some recognition for the service that they gave. That's beautiful. I just love that. And since uh, the monument has been unveiled to the public, what kinds of things they've been hearing from people who are not Indigenous and have visited there? Yeah, so the the comments have been all very positive. People have reached out to us and said how amazing they thought it looked um, and how important it was as a contribution to the veteran cemetery. I think more than anything is that they just didn't know. And this is an opportunity, a very, very visible opportunity to express the contributions of Indigenous people in the U.S. Armed Forces. Why do you think that piece of history was not told? Well, I think that there's a problem in the way that we tell U.S. history in general. U.S. history is very much told from a victor perspective and tends to uplift certain stories and downplay other stories. And so unless, you know, the media gets a hold of a story like the Code Talkers and it becomes a film, these stories tend to be very, very hidden. And yet the contributions are great. And one of the things that I say all the time is there is no U.S. history without Indigenous people's history. There is no Rhode Island history without Narragansett and other First Peoples histories. But that's not how it's taught. It's not taught in the K-12 school systems. It's not taught in the college. It's just starting to creep in now in the 21st century. Um, Whenever it has been brought up, it's often taught in a very stereotypical way rather than actually telling truths about Indigenous people, their culture, their life ways, their communities, and their contributions to the founding and creation of this nation um, and the continued contributions in every piece and fabric of this country. Mm, Absolutely. Um, And for you, you know, as the co-chair of this committee and the executive director uh, of a a museum that does this work, why is it so personal for you to take on this work? Well, you know, I have so many family members that are veterans. My father's a veteran. Both my grandfather's are were veterans. You know, I have uncles and great uncles that were veterans. My husband is a veteran who also served on this committee. You know, I think of my great uncle, my grandmother's brother, gave the 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 greatest honor, um, a gift of his life for the sacrifice and protection of his people, his family, his community, the broader United States family and community. That's interesting to me that so many of your family have been uh, involved in in wartime. What kinds of stories did you hear growing up as to why so many of your family took up, you know, protecting their lands? I asked that very question because, you know, as a museum educator, I'm often doing presentations on these things. And I'm not a military, you know, veteran myself. I have not served in the military, uh, partly because I can't do a (laughs) push-up. (laughs) 
I'm there with you. <laughs> but but I did. I asked why this service, what is this about? And the thing that I kept getting resoundingly back is that as a people, we have great respect for warriors and that we have these warrior societies in our communities and there's such respect and honor and valor in being a warrior and that the it is so important to to our people to protect our homeland, even though there may be this country that's superimposed over top of our nations, they feel it in their heart and soul that this is our homeland. We've never left our homeland. And I, I see people in our communities that are, you know, really up in the ranks of military service. One of my cousins, he's, um, you know, I can't even remember his title. It's like a, a, a master general something. I think I just made that up. It's it's very, <laughs> it's got multiple, multiple words. I can't even recall now, but he's in the Marines and he's really high up in the Marines. And, and, you know, the veterans that come in that do the veterans ceremonies at powwow and at other important veterans gatherings, the honor guards, it's really important for them to, participate in those honor guards and to post the U.S. flag, the tribal flags, the the eagle staffs, you know, it's it's such an honor and such an, a symbol of pride uh, to be part of that. And speaking of that, others on the honoring Indigenous veterans of Turtle Island Committee are also, you know, passionate about the creation of this moment, monument. Um, and your website has several quotes from those members. Would you be able to share a few of those thoughts with us? Sure. Um, I, I really want to uplift um, the the veterans that serve on our committee. Maya Hill is a Narragansett tribal citizen, and she's a veteran of the U.S. Army and a proud mother of three. Uh, she's the daughter of a U.S. Air Force Korean War veteran. The mother to a daughter is who is currently serving in the U.S. Air Force and the mother of a son who's also a veteran of the U.S. Army. And she says that she's honored to serve on this advisory, um, which is long overdue, to tribute Uh, to give tribute to our ancestors who have gone before us. Deeds, not words. And um, she serves as a veteran service representative for the Department of Veteran Affairs, and that's Maya Hill Narragansett. We also have um, Candace Testa, who's Mashantucket Pequot, and she is also a veteran. And she wrote, The Indigenous Veterans Memorial is a reminder to the world that not only are we still here, but so are the spirits of our warrior ancestors who served and protect us regardless of genocidal efforts against them. And so in this way, we honor them. Yuach. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that. Now, on this side of the medicine line, when our First Nations um, men and women uh, served, they were not treated the same way when they came home. For example, many of the veterans here received land, but First Nations did not. Is that similar uh, in America? You know, I think, unfortunately, the, the the situation of conquest and colonization is really to the detriment of Indigenous people. And often the benefits that the majority community receive, often, even if it's not overtly done, it's covertly done that they're not receiving those same benefits mm-hmm. um, in the same ways, um, whether that's access to college, whether that's access to funding towards um, housing and, and being able to purchase housing 
housing through these special mechanisms through the Veterans Administration. A lot of times the Native community is not either informed of these opportunities or they're deferred from those opportunities. Things certainly are slowly getting better in the United States for sure, but we also see in this day and age where there's a lot of conflict on racial lines that some things that had improved are now being turned around. Um, There are becoming more barriers again for Indigenous people and other peoples of color. Can you give me an example of what you mean by that? Um, I mean, there was just a Supreme Court case that just came down on affirmative action, for example. You know, affirmative action was put into place to create equity when there was such an inequity for communities of color in general, which includes the Native population. And now that has been rescinded by the Supreme Court. And, you know, now people can't use any kind of racial language to create access to resources, opportunities, whether that's college admissions, whether that's jobs, whether that's different kinds of things. And they're sort of dismantling all the things that were put into place to try to create some equity. And we all know that we haven't gotten to that equitable place yet. Mm. And now they're dismantling these things that were trying to create some opportunity. So I, I feel that that's a challenge. But with that being said, I do believe that there are people still working hard towards um, equity in this country. And I think that this is a time period that maybe is going to be a little bit difficult, but I think people are going to continue to work toward that. Mm. Um, what do you think, you know, you've done You've done this little change in, in, in your corner of the world on Rhode Island, and it's really beautiful. Um, what do you think it's going to take to get Indigenous veterans everywhere the recognition and acknowledgement that they deserve? Well, I hope that this is an example and that maybe state by state, communities that are from that state can come together and form committees like we did to get recognition within their veteran cemeteries. I'm hopeful that um, having opportunity to share these words with um, your audience, that that will pique someone's idea. We're happy to give people suggestions on how we went about doing it and, and give them, you know, the pitfalls that we fell in and the things that we had to overcome, um, but also the successes of, of getting it done and, and that maybe that would help them and inspire them to do that work as well. Loren, thank you so much for your time today and sharing this with us. You're welcome. Thank you. And uh, happy Veterans Day to all veterans of this planet Earth. Loren Spears is a member of the Narragansett Tribal Nation. She is the co-chair of the Honoring Indigenous Veterans of Turtle Island Committee and the executive director of the Tomaquag Museum in Exeter, Rhode Island. That's all our time on Radio Indigenous. This episode was produced by Kim Kasher, Zoe Tennant, Laura Bonestubing, Rhiannon Johnson and Aisha Smith-Belgaba. Find us on our website at cbc.ca slash unreserved or download the podcast on the CBC Listen app. I'm your favorite cousin, Rosanna Deerchild, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty 1 territory. Ginaskinamitanawa. I will say.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.